This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Christine Blashford, www.wokeupthismorning.co.uk. The Price of Love by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 6 Theories of the Theft. Part 1 the inspiring and agreeable image of Rachel floated above vast contending forces of ideas in the mind of Louis Fores, as he bent over his petty cash-book amid the dust of the vile inner office at Horrocleves, and their altercation was sharpened by the fact that Louis had not had enough sleep. He had had a great deal more sleep than Rachel, but he had not had what he was in the habit of calling his whack of it. Although never in a hurry to go to bed, he appreciated as well as any doctor the importance of sleep in the economy of the human frame, and his weekly average of repose was high. He was an expert sleeper. He thirsted after righteousness, and the petty cash-book was permeated through and through with unrighteousness, and it was his handiwork. Of course, under the unconscious influence of Rachel, seen in her kitchen, and seen also in various other striking aspects during the exciting night, he might have bravely exposed the iniquity of the petty cash-book to Jim Horrocleave, and cleared his conscience, and then gone and confessed to Rachel, and thus prepared the way for the inner peace and a new life. He would have suffered, there was indeed a possibility of very severe suffering, but he would have been a free man, yes, free, even if in prison, and he would have followed the fine tradition of rectitude, exhorting the respect and admiration of all true souls, etc. He had read authentic records of similar deeds. What stopped him from carrying out the programme of honesty was his powerful worldly common sense. Despite what he had read, and despite the inspiring image of Rachel, his common sense soon convinced him that confession would be an error of judgment, and quite unremunerative for, at any rate, very many years. Hence he abandoned regretfully the notion of confession, as a beautifully impossible dream. But righteousness was not thereby entirely denied to him. His thirst for it could still be assuaged by the device of an oath to repay secretly to Horrocleave every penny that he had stolen from Horrocleave, which oath he took, and felt better and worthier of Rachel. He might, perhaps, have inclined more effectually towards confession had not the petty cash-book appeared to him in the morning light as an admirably convincing piece of work. It had the most innocent air, and was markedly superior to his recollection of it. On many pages he himself could scarcely detect his own traces. He began to feel that he could rely pretty strongly on the cleverness of the petty cash-book. Only four blank pages remained in it. A few days more and it would be filled up, finished, labelled with a gummed white label showing its number and the dates of its first and last entries, shelved and forgotten. A pity that Horrocleave's suspicions had not been delayed for another month or so, for then the book might have been mislaid, lost, or even consumed in a conflagration. But never mind. A certain amount of ill-luck fell to every man, and he would trust his excellent handicraft in the petty cash-book. It was his only hope in the world now that the mysterious and heavenly banknotes were gone. His attitude towards the banknotes was, quite naturally, illogical and self-contradictory. While the banknotes were in his pocket, he had in the end seen three things with clearness— first the wickedness of appropriating them second the danger of appropriating them having regard to the prevalent habit of keeping the numbers of banknotes third the wild madness of attempting to utilize them in order to replace the stolen petty cash for by no ingenuity could the presence of a hoard of over seventy pounds in the petty cash box been explained he had perfectly grasped all that and yet the notes having vanished he felt forlorn alone as one who has lost his best friend a prop and firm succour in a universe of quicksands in the matter of the burning of the notes his conscience did not accuse him on the contrary he emerged blameless from the episode it was not he who first had so carelessly left the notes lying about he had not searched them he had not purloined them they had been positively thrust upon him his intention in assuming charge of them for a brief space was to teach some negligent person a lesson 
During the evening fate had given him no opportunity to produce them, and when in the night, with honesty unimpeachable, he had decided to restore them to the landing, fate had intervened once more. At each step of the affair he had acted for the best in difficult circumstances. Persons so ill-advised as to drop banknotes under chairs must accept all the consequences of their act. Who could have foreseen that while he was engaged on the philanthropic errand of fetching a doctor for an aged lady, Rachel would light a fire under the notes? No, not merely was he without sin in the matter of the banknotes, he was rather an ill-used person, a martyr deserving of sympathy. And further, he did not regret the notes, he was glad they were gone. They could no longer tempt him now, and their disappearance would remain a mystery for ever. So far as they were concerned, he could look his aunt or anybody else in the face without a tremor. The mere destruction of the immense undetermined sum of money did not seriously ruffle him. As an ex-bank clerk he was aware that, though an individual would lose, the state, through the Bank of England, would correspondingly gain, and thus for the nonce he had the large sensation of a patriot. Part two. Axon, the factotum of the counting-house, came in from the outer office, with a mien composed of mirth and apprehension in about equal parts. If Axon happened to be a subject of a conversation, and there was any uncertainty as to which Axon out of a thousand Axons he might be, the introducer of the subject would always say, "'You know, sandy-haired fellow.' This described him, hair, beard, moustache. Sandy-haired men have no age until they are fifty-five, and Axon was not fifty-five. He was a pigeon-flyer by choice, and a clerk in order that he might be a pigeon-flyer. His fault was that, with no moral right whatever to do so, he would treat Louis Fores as a business equal in the office, and as a social equal in the street. He sprang upon Louis now as one grinning valet might spring upon another, enormous with news, and whispered, "'I say, Governor's put his foot through them steps from painting-shop and sprained his ankle. Look out for ructions, eh? Thank the Lord it's a half-day,' and then whip back to his own room." On any ordinary Saturday morning, Louis, by a fine frigidity, would have tried to show to the obtuse Axon that he resented such demeanour towards himself on the part of an Axon, assuming as it did that the art director of the works was one of the servile crew that scuttled about in terror if the ferocious Horacleave happened to sneeze. But to-day the mere sudden information that Horacleave was on the works gave him an unpleasant start and seriously impaired his presence of mind. He had not been aware of Horacleave's arrival. He had been expecting to hear Horacleave's step and voice, and the rustle of him hanging up his mackintosh outside. Horacleave always wore a mackintosh instead of an overcoat. And all the general introductory sounds of his advent, before he finally came into the inner room. But now, for old Louis knew, Horacleave might already have been in the inner room, before Louis. He was upset. The enemy was not attacking him in the proper and usual way. And the next instant, ere he could collect and reorganise his forces, he was paralysed by the footfall of Horacleave, limping, and the bang of a door, and Louis thought, "'He's in the outer office. He's only got to take his mackintosh off, and then I shall see his head coming through this door, and perhaps he'll ask me for the petty cash-book right off.' But Horacleave did not even pause to remove his mackintosh. In defiance of immemorial habit, being himself considerably excited and confused, he stalked straight in, half-hopping, and sat down in his frowsy chair at his frowsy desk with his cap at the back of his head. He was a spare man, of medium height, with a thin, shrewd face, and a constant look of hard, fierce determination. And there was Louis staring like a fool at the open page of the petty cash-book, incriminating himself every instant. "'Hello,' said Louis, without looking round. "'What's up?' "'What's up?' Horacleave scowled. "'What do you mean?' "'I thought you were limping just the least bit in the world,' said Louis, whose tact was instinctive and indestructible. "'Oh, that!' said Horacleave, as though nothing was further from his mind than the peculiarity of his gait that morning. He bit his lip. "'Slipped over something?' Louis suggested. "'Aye,' said Horacleave, somewhat less ominously, and began to open his letters. Louis saw that he had done well to feign ignorance of the sprain, and to assume that Horacleave had slipped, whereas in fact Horacleave had put his foot through a piece of rotten wood. 
Everybody in the works upon pain of death would have to pretend that the employer had merely slipped, and that the consequences were negligible. Horrocleave had already nearly eaten an old man alive for the sin of asking whether he had hurt himself. And he had not hurt himself, because two days previously he had ferociously stopped the odd man of the works from wasting his time in mending just that identical stair, and had asserted that the stair was in excellent condition. Horrocleave, though Napoleonic by disposition, had a provincial mind, even a five-towns mind. He regarded as sheer loss any expenditure on repairs or renewals, or the process of cleansing. His theory was that everything would do indefinitely. He passed much of his time in making things do. His confidence in the theory that things could indeed be made to do was usually justified, but the steps from the painting-shop, a gimcrack ladder with handrail attached somehow externally to a wall, had at length betrayed it. That the accident had happened to himself, and not to a lad balancing a plankful of art-lustre ware on one shoulder, was sheer luck, and now the odd man, with the surreptitious air of one engaged in a nefarious act, was putting a new tread on the stairs. Thus devoutly are the Napoleonic served. Horrocleave seemed to weary of his correspondence. "'By the by,' he said in a strange tone, "'let's have a look at that petty cash-book.' Louis rose, and with all his charm, with all the elegance of a man intended by nature for wealth and fashion instead of a slave on a foul pot-bank, gave up the book. It was like giving up hope to the last vestige, like giving up the ghost. He saw with horrible clearness that he had been deceiving himself, that Horrocleave's ruthless eye could not fail to discern at the first glance on his neat dodges, such as additions of ten to the shillings, and even to the pounds here and there, and ingenious errors in carrying forward totals from the bottom of one page to the top of the next. He began to speculate whether Horrocleave would be content merely to fling him out of the office, or whether he would prosecute. Prosecution seemed much more in accordance with the Napoleonic temperament, and yet Louis could not then conceive himself the victim of a prosecution. Anybody else, but not Louis Fores. Horrocleave, his elbow on the table, leaned his head on his hand and began to examine the book. Suddenly he looked up at Louis, who could not move, and could not cease from agreeably smiling. Said Horrocleave in a still more peculiar tone, just ask Axon whether he means to go fetch wages to-day or to-morrow. Has he forgotten it's Saturday? Louis shot away into the outer office, where Axon was just putting on his hat to go to the bank. Alone in the outer office, Louis wandered. The whole of his vitality was absorbed in the single function of wandering. Then, through the thin slit of the half-open door, between the top and the middle hinges, he beheld Horrocleave bending in judgment over the book, and he gazed at the vision in the fascination of horror. In a few moments Horrocleave leaned back, and Louis saw that his face had turned paler. It went almost white. Horrocleave was breathing strangely, his arms dropped downward, his body slipped to one side, his cap fell off, his eyes shut, his mouth opened, his head sank loosely over the back of the chair like the head of a corpse. He had fainted. The thought passed through Louis's mind that stupefaction at the complex unrighteousness of the petty cash records had caused Horrocleave to lose consciousness. Then the true explanation occurred to him. It was the pain in his ankle that had overcome the heroic sufferer. Louis had desired to go to his aid, but he could not budge from his post. Presently the colour began slowly to return to Horrocleave's cheek. His eyes opened. He looked round sleepily, and then wildly, and then he rubbed his eyes and yawned. He remained cuisant for several minutes, while a railway lorry thundered through the archway, and the hooves of the great horse crunched on shores in the yard. Then he called in a subdued voice, "'Louis, where the devil are ye?' Louis re-entered the room, and as he did so, Horrocleave shut the petty cash-book with an abrupt gesture. "'Here, take it,' said he, pushing the book away. "'Is it all right?' Louis asked. Horrocleave nodded. "'Well, I've checked about forty editions,' and he smiled sardonically. "'I think you might do it a bit oftener,' said Louis, and then went on. "'I say, don't you think it might be a good thing if you took your boot off? "'You never know when you've slipped, whether it won't swell. I mean the ankle.' "'Bosh!' exclaimed Horrocleave, with precipitation, but after an instant added thoughtfully, 
"'Well, I dunno. Wouldn't do any harm, would it? I say, get me some water, will you? I don't know how it is, but I'm as thirsty as a dog.' The heroic martyr, to the affirmation that he had not hurt himself, had handsomely saved his honour. He could afford to relax a little now the rigour of consistency in conduct. With twinges and yawns he permitted Louis to help him with the boot and to put an art-lustre cup to his lips. Louis was in the highest spirits. He had seen the gates of the inferno and was now snatched up to paradise. He knew that Horrocleave had never more than half suspected him, and that the terrible Horrocleave pride would prevent Horrocleave from asking for the book again. Henceforth, saved by a miracle, he could live in utter rectitude, he could respond freely to the inspiring influence of Rachel, and he would do so. He smiled at his previous fears, and was convinced, by no means for the first time, that a providence watched over him because of his good intentions and his nice disposition, that nothing really serious could ever occur to louis fores he reflected happily that in a few days he would begin a new petty cash-book and he envisaged it as a symbol of his new life the future smiled he made sure that his aunt Maldon was dying, and though he liked her very much and would regret her demise, he could not be expected to be blind to the fact that a proportion of her riches would devolve on himself. Indeed, in unluckily causing a loss of money to his aunt Maldon, he had in reality only been robbing himself, so that there was no need for any kind of remorse. When the works closed for the weekend, he walked almost serenely up to Bikers for news, news less of his aunt's condition than of the discovery that a certain roll of banknotes had been mislaid. Part 3 the front door was open when Louis arrived at Mrs. Maldon's house, and he walked in. Anybody might have walked in. There was nothing unusual in this. It was not a sign that the mistress of the house was ill in bed, and its guardianship therefore disorganised. The front doors of Bursley, even the most select, were constantly ajar, and the fresh wind from off the pot-bank was constantly blowing through those exposed halls and up those staircases. For the demon of public inquisitiveness is understood in the five towns to be a nocturnal demon. The fear of it begins only at dusk. A woman who in the evening protects her parlour like her honour will, while the sun is above the horizon, show the sacred secrets of the kitchen itself to any one who chooses to stand on the front step. Louis put his hat and stick on the oak chest, and with a careless, elegant gesture brushed back his dark hair. The door of the parlour was slightly ajar. He pushed it gently open and peeped round it with a pleasant arch expression, on the chance of there being someone within. Rachel was lying on the Chesterfield. Her left cheek, resting on her left hand, was embedded in the large cushion. A large coil of her tawny hair, displaced, had spread loosely over the dark green of the sofa. The left foot hung limp over the edge of the sofa, the jutting angle of the right knee divided sharply the drapery of her petticoat into two systems, and her right shoe, with its steel buckle, pressed against the yielding back of the Chesterfield. The right arm lay lissom like a snake across her breast. All her muscles were lax, and every full curve of her body tended downward in response to the negligent pose. Her eyes were shut, her face flushed, and her chest heaved with the slow regularity of her deep unconscious breathing. Louis, as he gazed, was enchanted. This was not Miss Fleckering, the companion and household help of Mrs. Maldon, but a nymph, a fay, the universal symbol of his highest desire. He would have been happy to kiss the glinting steel buckle, so feminine, so provocative, so coy. The tight rounded line of the waist, every bend of the fingers, the fall of the eyelashes, all were exquisite and precious to him after the harsh, unsatisfying, desolating masculinity of Horrocleaves. This was the divine reward of Horrocleaves, the sole reason of Horrocleaves. Horrocleaves only existed in order that this might exist, and be maintained amid cushions and the softness of calm and sequestered interiors, waiting for ever in acquiescence for the arrival of manful doers from Horrocleaves. The magnificent pride of male youth animated Louis. He had not a care in the world. Even his long unpaid tailor's bill was magically abolished. He was an embodiment of exulting hope and fine aspirations. 
Rachel stirred, dimly aware of the invasion, and Louis, actuated by the most delicate regard for her sensitive modesty, vanished back for a moment into the hall, until she should have fitted herself for his beholding. Mrs. Tams had come from somewhere into the hall. She was munching a square of bread and cold bacon, and she curtsied, exclaiming, "'It's never Mester Forrest. That's twice has been woke up this day.' "'Who's there?' Rachel called out, and her voice had the breaking, bewildered softness of a woman's in the dark, emerging from a dream. "'Sorry, sorry,' said Louis, behind the door. "'It's all right,' she reassured him. He returned to the room. She was sitting upright on the sofa, her arms a little extended, and the tips of her fingers touching the sofa. The coil of her hair had been arranged. The romance of the exciting night still clung to her, for Louis, but what chiefly seduced him was the mingling in her mien of soft confusion and candid sturdy honesty and dependableness. He felt that here was not only a ravishing charm, but a source of moral strength from which he could draw inexhaustibly that which he had had a slight suspicion he lacked. He felt that here was joy and salvation united, and it seemed too good to be true. Strange that when she greeted him at the doorstep on the previous evening he had imagined that she was revealing herself to him for the first time, and again later in the kitchen he had imagined that she was revealing herself to him for the first time, and again still later in the sudden crisis at his bedroom he had imagined that she was revealing herself to him for the first time, for now he perceived that he had never really seen her before, and he was astounded and awed. "'Aren't he still on the upgrade?' he inquired, using all his own charm. He guessed, of course, that Mrs. Maldon must be still better, and he was very glad, although if she recovered it would be she and not himself that he had deprived of banknotes. "'Oh, yes, she's better,' said Rachel, not moving from the sofa. "'But have you heard what's happened?' In spite of himself he trembled, awaiting the disclosure. Now for the banknotes, he reflected, bracing his nerves, he shook his head. She told him what had happened, she told him at length, quickening her speech as she proceeded, and for a few moments it was as if he was being engulfed by an enormous wave and would drown. But the next instant he recollected that he was on dry land, safe, high beyond the reach of any catastrophe. His position was utterly secure. The past was past, the leaf was turned, he had but to forget, and he was confident of his ability to forget. The compartments of his mind were innumerable, and as separate as the dungeons of a medieval prison. "'Isn't it awful?' she murmured. "'Well, it is rather awful.' nine hundred and sixty-five pounds fancy it the wave approached him again as she named the sum nevertheless he never once outwardly blenched as he had definitely put away unrighteousness so his face showed no sign of guilt like many ingenious-minded persons he had in a high degree the faculty of appearing innocent except when he really was innocent if you ask me said rachel she never took any of the notes upstairs at all she left them all somewhere downstairs and only took the serviette upstairs Yes, he agreed thoughtfully, wondering whether, on the other hand, Mrs. Maldon had not taken all the notes upstairs and left none of them downstairs. Was it possible that in that small roll, in that crushed ball that he had dropped into the grate, there was nearly a thousand pounds, the equivalent of an income of a pound a week for ever and ever? Never mind, the instant, so far as he was concerned, was closed. The dogma of his future life would be that the banknotes had never existed. And I've looked everywhere, Rachel insisted with strong emphasis. Louis remarked thoughtfully, as though a new aspect of the affair was presenting itself to him. "'It's really rather serious, you know.' "'I should just say it was as much money as that.' "'I mean,' said Louis, "'for everybody, that is to say Julian and me, we're involved.' "'How can you be involved? You didn't even know it was in the house.' "'No, but the old lady might have dropped it. I might have picked it up. Julian might have picked it up. Who's to prove?' She cut in coldly. "'Please don't talk like that.' He smiled with momentary constraint. He said to himself— it won't do to talk to this kind of girl like that. She won't stand it. Why, she wouldn't even dream of suspicion falling on herself, wouldn't dream of it. After a silence, he began, Well, and made a gesture to imply that the enigma baffled him. I give it up, breathed Rachel intimately. I fairly give it up. 
"'And, of course, that was the cause of her attack,' he said suddenly, as if the idea had just occurred to him. Rachel nodded, evidently. "'Well,' said he, "'I'll look in again during the afternoon. I must be getting along for my grub.' He was hoping that he had not unintentionally brought about his aunt's death. "'Not had your dinner?' she cried. "'Why, it's after half-past two. "'Oh, well, you know, Saturday.' "'I shall get you a bit of dinner here,' she said, "'and then perhaps Mrs. Maldon will be waking up.' "'Yes,' she repeated positively, "'I shall get you a bit of dinner here myself. "'Mrs. Maldon would not be at all pleased if I didn't.' "'I'm frightfully hungry,' he admitted, and he was. "'When she had left the parlour, "'he perceived evidences here and there "'that she had been hunting uphill and down dale for the notes, "'and he went into the back room with an earnest examining air, "'as though he might find part of the missing hoard, after all, "'in some niche overlooked by Rachel.' He would have preferred to think that Mrs. Maldon had not taken the whole of the money upstairs, but reflection did much to convince him that she had. It was infinitely regrettable that he had not counted his treasure-trove under the chair. Part 4 The service of his meal, which had the charm of a picnic, was interrupted by the arrival of the doctor, whose report on the invalid, however, was so favourable that Louis could quite dismiss the possibly homicidal aspect of his dealings with the banknotes. The shock of the complete disappearance of the vast sum had perhaps brought Mrs. Maldon to the brink of death, but she had edged safely away again, in accordance with her own calm prophecy that very morning. When the doctor had gone, and the patient was indulged in her desire to be left alone for sleep, Louis very slowly and luxuriously finished his repast, with Rachel sitting opposite to him, in Mrs. Maldon's place at the dining-table. He lit a cigarette, and gracefully leaning his elbows on the table, gazed at her through the beautiful grey smoke-veil, which was like the clouds of paradise. What thrilled Louis was the obvious fact that he fascinated her. She was transformed under his glance. How her eyes shone! How her cheek flushed and paled! What passionate vitality found vent in her little gestures! But in the midst of this transformation her honesty, her loyalty, her exquisite ingenuousness, her superb dependability, remained. She was no light creature, no flirt nor seeker after dubious sensations. He felt that at last he was appreciated by one whose appreciation was tremendously worth having. He was confirmed in that private opinion of himself that no mistakes hitherto made in his career had been able to destroy. He felt happy and confident as never before. Luck, of course, but luck deserved. He could marry this unique creature and be idolised and cherished for the rest of his life. In an instant, from being a scorner of conjugal domesticity, he became a scorner of the bachelor's existence, with its immeasurable secret ennui hidden beneath the jaunty cloak of a specious freedom. Freedom to be bored, freedom to fret and long and envy, freedom to eat ashes and masticate dust. He would marry her. Yes, he was saved, because he was loved, and he meant to be worthy of his regenerate destiny. All the best part of his character came to the surface and showed in his face. But he did not ask his heart whether he was or was not in love with Rachel. The point did not present itself. He certainly never doubted that he was seeing her with a quite normal vision. Their talk went through and through the enormous topic of the night and day, arriving at no conclusion whatever, except that there was no conclusion, not even a theory of a conclusion. And the Louis who now discussed the case was an innocent, reborn Louis, quite unconnected with the Louis of the previous evening. He knew no more of the inwardness of the affair than Rachel did. Of such singular feats of doubling the personality is the self-deceiving mind capable. After a time it became implicit in the tone of their conversation that the mysterious disappearance in a small, ordinary house of even so colossal a sum as nine hundred and sixty-five pounds did not mean the end of the world. That is to say, they grew accustomed to the situation. Louis, indeed, permitted himself to suggest, as a man of the large, still-existing world, that Rachel should guard against overestimating the importance of the sum. True, as he had several times reflected, it did represent an income of about a pound a week, but after all what was a pound a week viewed in a proper perspective? 
Louis somehow glided from the enormous topic to the topic of the newest cinema. Rachel had never seen a cinema, except a very primitive one years earlier, and old Batchgrew was mentioned, he being notoriously a cinema magnate. "'I cannot stand that man,' said Rachel, with a candour that showed to what intimacy their talk had developed. Louis was delighted by the explosion, and they both fell violently upon Thomas Batchgrew, and found intense pleasure in destroying him, and Louis was saying to himself enthusiastically, "'How well she understands human nature!' so that when old Batchgrew, without any warning or preliminary sound, stalked pompously into the room, their young confusion was excessive. They felt themselves suddenly in the presence of not merely a personal adversary, but of an enemy of youth and of love and of joy, of a being mysterious and malevolent who neither would nor could comprehend them, and they were at once resentful and intimidated. During the morning Councillor Batchgrew had provided himself, doubtless by purchase since he had not been home, with a dandiacal spotted white waistcoat in honour of the warm and sunny weather. This waistcoat, by its sprightly unsuitability to his aged uncouthness, somehow intensified the sinister quality of his appearance. "'Found it?' he demanded tersely. Rachel, strangely at a loss, hesitated and glanced at Louis as if for secure. "'No, I haven't, Mr. Batchgrew,' she said. "'I haven't, I'm sure. And I've turned over every possible thing, likely or unlikely.' Mr. Batchgrew growled. "'From the look of ye, I made sure that the money had turned up all right. Ye were that comfortable and cosy. Who'd guess as nigh on a thousand pounds missing out of this house since last night?' The heavy voice rolled over them brutally. Louis attempted to withstand Mr. Batchgrew's glare, but failed. He was sure of the absolute impregnability of his own position, but the clear memory of at least one humiliating and disastrous interview with Thomas Batchgrew in the past robbed Louis's eye of its composure. The circumstances under which he had left the councillor's employ some years ago were historic and unforgettable. "'I came in back way instead of front way,' said Thomas Batchgrew, "'because I thought I'd have a look at that scullery door. Kitchen's empty.' "'What about the scullery door?' Louis lightly demanded. Rachel murmured, "'I forgot to tell you it was open when I came down in the middle of the night,' and then she added, "'Wide open.' "'Upon my soul,' said Louis slowly, with marked constraint, "'I really forgot whether I looked at that door before I went to bed. I know I looked at all the others.' "'I'd looked at it anyway,' said Rachel defiantly, gazing at the table. "'And when you found it open, miss,' pursued Thomas Batchgrew, "'what did you do?' "'I shut it and locked it.' "'Where was the key?' "'In the door.' "'Lock in order?' "'Yes.' "'Well, then, how could it have been opened from the outside? "'There isn't a mark on the door, outside or in.' "'As far as that goes, Mr. Batchgrew,' said Rachel, "'only last week the key fell out of the lock on the inside "'and slid down the brick floor to the outside. "'You know there's a slope, and I had to go out at the house by the front, "'and the lamplighter climbed over the back gate for me "'and let me into the yard so that I could get the key again. "'That might have happened last night. "'Someone might have shaken the key out and pulled it under the door "'with a bit of wire or something.' "'That won't do,' Thomas Batchgrew stopped her. "'You said the key was in the door on the inside.' "'Well, when they'd once opened the door from the outside, "'couldn't they have put the key on the inside again?' "'They? Who?' "'Burglars.' "'Thomas Batchgrew repeated sarcastically, "'Burglars. Burglars?' and snorted. "'Well, Mr. Batchgrew, either burglars must have been at work,' said Louis, "'who was fascinated by Rachel's surprising news and equally surprising theory. "'Either burglars must have been at work,' he repeated impressively, "'or the money is still in the house. That's evident.' "'Is it?' snarled Batchgrew. "'Look here, miss, and you, young Forres, I didn't make much of this morning, because I thought the money had happened to be found. But seeing as it isn't, and as we're talking about it, what time was the rumpus last night?' "'What time?' Rachel muttered. "'What time was it, Mr. Forres?' "'I don't know,' said Louis. "'Perhaps the doctor would know.' "'Oh,' said Rachel, "'Mrs. Tam said the hall clock had stopped. That must have been when Mrs. Mulden knocked up against it.' She went to the parlour door and opened it, displaying the hall clock, which showed twenty-five minutes past twelve. Louis had crept up behind Mr. Batchgrew, who, in his inapposite white waistcoat, stood between the two lovers, stertorous with vague anathema. 
"'So that was the time,' said he. "'And the burglars must have been and gone afore that. "'A likely thing, burglars, coming at twelve o'clock at night, isn't it? "'And I'll tell ye something else. "'Them burglars was copped last night at night, but at eleven o'clock, "'when the pub's closed, if ye want to know. "'The whole gang of three on em. "'Then what about that burglary last night down the lane?' "'Rachel asked sharply. "'Oh!' exclaimed Lily. "'Was there a burglary down the lane last night? "'I didn't know that.' "'No, there wasn't,' said Batchgrew ruthlessly. "'That burglary was a practical joke, and it's all over the town. "'Denry Makin had a hand in that affair, and by now I dare say he wishes he hadn't.' "'Still, Mr. Batchgrew,' Louis argued superiorly, "'with the philosophic impartiality of a man well accustomed to the calm unravelling of a crime. "'There may be other burglars in the land beside just those three. "'He would not willingly allow the theory of burglars to crumble. "'Its attractiveness increased every moment.' "'There may and there mayn't, young Forrest,' said Thomas Batchgrew. "'Did you hear anything of him?' "'No, I didn't,' Louis replied restively. "'And yet you ought to have been listening out for him. "'Why ought I to have been listening out for them? "'Knowing there was all that money in the house.' "'Mr. Forrest didn't know,' said Rachel. "'Louis felt himself unjustly smirched. "'It's scarcely an hour ago,' said he, "'that I heard about this money for the first time.' "'And he felt as innocent and aggrieved as he looked. "'Mr. Batchgrew smacked his lips loudly. "'Then,' he announced, "'I'm going down to the police station to put it in Snow's hand.' Rachel straightened herself. But surely not without telling Mrs. Maldon. Mr. Batchgrew fingered his immense whiskers. "'Is she better?' he inquired threateningly. This was his first sign of interest in Mrs. Maldon's condition. "'Oh, yes, much. She's going on very well. The doctor's just been.' "'Is she asleep?' "'She's resting. She may be asleep.' "'Did you tell her you hadn't found the money?' "'Yes.' "'What did she say?' "'She didn't say anything.' "'It might be municipal money, for all she seems to care,' remarked Thomas Batchgrew, with a short, bitter grin. "'Well, I'll be moving to the police station. I've never come across out like this before, and I'm going to get to the bottom of it.' Rachel slipped out of the door into the hall. "'Please wait a moment, Mr. Batchgrew,' she whispered timidly. "'What for?' "'Till I've told Mrs. Maldon.' "'But if her's asleep?' "'I must waken her. I couldn't think of letting you go to the police station without letting her know, after what she said this morning.' Rachel waited. Mr. Batchgrew glanced aside. "'Here, come here,' said Mr. Batchgrew in a different tone. The fact was that, put to the proof, he dared not, for all his autocratic habit, openly disobey the injunction of the benignant, indifferent, helpless Mrs. Maldon. "'Come here,' he repeated coarsely. Rachel obeyed, shamefaced despite herself. Batchgrew shut the door. "'Now,' he said grimly, "'what's your secret? Out with it. I know you, and hers got a secret. What is it?' Rachel sat down on the sofa, hid her face in her hands, and startled both men by a sob. She wept with violence, and then through her tears, and half looking up, she cried out passionately, "'It's all your fault! Why did you leave the money in the house at all? You knew you'd no right to do it, Mr. Batchgrew!' The counsellor was shaken out of his dignity by the incredible impudence of this indictment from a chit like Rachel. Similar experiences, however, had happened to him before, for, though as a rule people most curiously conspired with him to keep up the fiction that he was sacred, at rare intervals somebody's self-control would break down, and bitter, inconvenient home-truths would resound in the ear of Thomas Batchgrew. But he would recover himself in a few moments, and usually some diversion would occur to save him. He was nearly always lucky. A diversion occurred now, of the least expected kind. The cajoling tones of Mrs. Tams were heard on the staircase— "'Nay, ma'am, nay, ma'am, this'll never do. Must I go on my bended knees to ye?' And then the firm but soft voice of Mrs. Maldon. "'I must speak to Mr. Batchgrew. I must have Mr. Batchgrew here at once. Didn't you hear me call and call to you?' "'That I didn't, ma'am. I was beating the feather bed in the back bedroom. Nay, not a step lower'd you go, ma'am, not if I lose me job for it.' 
Thomas Batchgrew and Louis were already out in the hall. Halfway down the stairs stood Mrs. Maldon, supporting herself by the banisters and being supported by Mrs. Tams. She was wearing her pink peignoir with white frills at the neck and wrists. Her black hair was loose on her shoulders like the hair of a young girl. Her pallid and heavily seamed features with the deep shining eyes trembled gently, as if in response to a distant vibration. She gazed upon the two silent men with an expression that united benignancy with profound inquietude and sadness. All her past life was in her face, inspiring it with strength and sorrow. "'Mr. Batchgrew,' she said, "'I've heard your voice for a long time. I want to speak to you.' And then she turned, yielded to the solicitous alarm of Mrs. Tams, climbed feebly up the stairs, and vanished round the corner at the top, and Mrs. Tams, putting her frowsy head for an instant over the handrail, stopped to adjure Mr. Batchgrew. "'Eh, mister, you'd better stop where you are a while.' From the parlour came the faint sobbing of Rachel. The two men had not a word to say— Mr. Batchgrew grunted, vacillating. It seemed as if the majestic apparition of Mrs. Maldon had rebuked everything that was derogatory and undignified in her trustee, and that both he and Louis were apologising to the empty hall for being common, base creatures. Each of them, and especially Louis, had the sense of being awakened to events of formidable grandeur whose imminence neither had suspected. Still assuring himself that his position was absolutely safe, Louis nevertheless was aware of a sinking in the stomach. He could rebut any accusation, and yet murmured his craven conscience. What could be the enigma between Mrs. Maldon and Rachel? He was now trying to convince himself that Mrs. Maldon had in fact divided the money into two parts, of which he had handled only one, and that the impressive mystery had to do with the other part of the treasure, which he had neither seen nor touched. How then could he personally be threatened? And yet, said his conscience again, in about a minute Mrs. Tams reappeared at the head of the stairs. "'Her will have ye, master,' said she to the counsellor. Thomas Batchgrew mounted after her. Louis made a noise with his tongue as if starting a horse, and returned to the parlour. Rachel, still on the sofa, showed her wet face. "'I've got no secret,' she said passionately, "'and I'm sure Mrs. Maldon hasn't. What's he driving at?' The natural freedom of her gestures and vehement accent was enchanting to Louis. She jumped from the Chesterfield and ran away upstairs flying. He followed to the lobby and saw her dash into her own room and feverishly shut the door, which was in full view at the top of the stairs, and Louis thought he had never lived in any moment so exquisite and so alarming as that moment. He was now alone on the ground floor. He caught no sound from above. "'Well, I'd better get out of this,' he said to himself. "'Anyhow, I'm all right. What a girl! Terrific!' And lighting a fresh cigarette, he left the house. Part 5 "'And now what's amiss?' Thomas Batchgrew demanded, alone with Mrs. Maldon in the tranquillity of the bedroom. Mrs. Maldon lay once more in bed, the bedclothes covered her without a crease, and from the neat fold-back of the white sheet her wrinkled ivory face and curving black hair emerged so still and calm that her recent flight to the stairs seemed unreal, impossible. The impression Hermione gave was that she never had moved, and never would move, from the bed— Thomas Batchgrew's blusterous voice frankly showed acute irritation. He was angry because nine hundred and sixty-five pounds had monstrously vanished, because the chance of a good investment was lost, because Mrs. Maldon's tied his hands, because Rachel had forgotten her respect and his dignity in addressing him, but more because he felt too old to impose himself by sheer rough-riding, individual force on the other actors in the drama, and still more because he and nobody else had left the nine hundred and sixty-five pounds in the house. What an orgy of denunciation he would have plunged into had some other person insisted on leaving the money in the house with a similar result. Mrs. Maldon looked up at him with a glance of compassion. She was filled with pity for him because he had arrived at old age without dignity and without any sense of what was fine in life. He was not even susceptible to the chastening influences of a sick-room. She knew, indeed, that he hated and despised sickness in others, and that when ill himself he became a moaning mass of cowardice and vituperation. 
and in her heart she invented the most wonderful excuses for him, and transformed him into a martyr of destiny who had suffered both through ancestry and through environment. Was it his fault that he was thus tragically defective, so that by the magic power of her benevolence he became dignified in spite of himself? She said, "'Mr. Batchgrew, I want you to oblige me by not discussing my affairs with any one but me.' At that moment the front door closed firmly below, and the bedroom vibrated. "'Is that Louis going?' she asked. Batchgrew went to the window and looked downward, lowering the pupils as far as possible so as to see the pavement. "'It's Louis going,' he replied. Mrs. Maldon sighed relief. Mr. Batchgrew said no more. "'What were you talking about downstairs to those two? Mrs. Maldon went on carefully. "'What do you suppose we were talking about?' retorted Batchgrew, still at the window. Then he turned towards her and proceeded in an outburst. "'If you want to know, Mrs., I was asking that young wench what the secret was between you and her.' "'The secret between Rachel and me?' "'Aye, ye both know what's happened to them notes, and ye've made it up between ye to say nowt.' Mrs. Maldon answered gravely. "'You are quite mistaken. I know nothing, and I'm sure Rachel doesn't. And we have made nothing up between us. How can you imagine such things?' "'Why don't ye have the police told?' "'I cannot do with the police in my house.' Mr. Batchgrew approached the bed almost threateningly. "'I'll tell you why you won't have the police told, because ye know Louis Forrest has taken your money. It's as plain as a pikestaff. You put it on the chair on the landing here, and ye left it there, and he came along and pocketed it.' Mrs. Maldon essayed to protest, but he cut her short. "'Did he, or did he not come upstairs after ye'd been upstairs yourself?' As Mrs. Maldon hesitated, Thomas Batchgrew began to feel younger and more impressive. "'Yes, he did,' said Mrs. Maldon at length, "'but only because I asked him to come up, to fasten the window.' "'What window?' "'The landing-window.' Mr. Batchgrew, startled and delighted by this unexpected confirmation of his theory, exploded. "'Ha! And how soon was that after you'd been upstairs with the notes?' "'It was just afterwards.' "'Ha! I don't mind telling you I've been suspecting that young man ever since this morning. I only learnt just now as he was in the house all night. That made me think for a moment as he'd done it after he'd all gone to bed, and for old I know he may have. But done it some time he has, and you know it as well as I do, Elizabeth.' Mrs. Maldon maintained her serenity. "'We may be unjust to him. I should never forgive myself if I was. He has a very good side to him, has Louis.' "'I've never seen it,' said Mr. Batchgrew, still growing in authority. "'He began as a thief, and he'll end as a thief, if it's no worse.' "'Began as a thief,' Mrs. Maldon protested. "'Well, what do you suppose he left the bank for?' "'I never knew quite why he left the bank. I always understood there was some unpleasantness. "'If you didn't know, it was because you didn't want to know. You never do want to know these things. "'Unpleasantness? There's only one sort of unpleasantness with the clerks in a bank. "'I know, anyhow, because I took the trouble to find out for myself when I had that bother with him in my own office. "'And a nice affair that was, too. "'But you told me at the time that his books were all right with you, only you preferred not to keep him.' Mrs. Maldon's voice was now plaintive. Thomas Batchgrew came close to the bed and leaned on the foot of it. "'There's some things as you won't hear, Elizabeth. His books were all right, but he'd made em all right. I got hold of him afore he'd done more than he could undo, that's all. There's one trifle, as I might a told ye, if ye hadn't had such a way of shutting folks up sometimes, Mrs. I'll tell ye now. Louis Fores went down on his knees to me in my office, on his knees and all blubbing. What about that?' Mrs. Maldon replied, "'You must have been glad ever since that you did give the poor boy another chance.' "'There's nothing I've regretted more,' said Thomas Batchgrew, with a grimness that became him. "'I heard last week he's keeping books and handling cash for Horrocleave nowadays. I know how that'll end. I'd warn Horrocleave, but it's no business of mine, especially as ye made me help ye to put him into Horrocleaves. There's half a dozen people in this town and in Hanbridge that can add up Louis Fores and have added him up. And now he's robbed ye in your own house. But it makes no matter. He's safe enough.' He sardonically snorted. 
"'He's safe enough. We cannot even stop the notes without telling the police, "'and you won't have the police told. Oh, no. "'He's managed to get on the right side of you. "'However, he'll only finish in one way, that chap will, "'whether you and me's here to see it or not.' "'Mr. Batchgrew had grown really impressive, and he knew it. "'Don't let us be hard,' pleaded Mrs. Maldon, "'and then in a firmer, prouder voice. "'There will be no scandal in my family, Mr. Batchgrew, as long as I live.' "'Mr. Batchgrew's answer was superb in its unconscious ferocity. "'That depends how long ye live.' His meaningless eyes rested on her with frosty impartiality as he reflected, "'I wonder how long she'll last.' He felt strong, he felt immortal, exactly like Mrs. Maldon, he was convinced that he was old only by the misleading arithmetic of years, that he was not really old, and that there was a subtle and vital difference between all other people of his age and himself. As for Mrs. Maldon, he regarded her as a mere poor relic of an organism. "'At our age,' Mrs. Maldon began, and paused as if collecting her thoughts, "'At our age, at our age,' he repeated, sharply deprecating the phrase. "'At our age,' said Mrs. Maldon, with slow insistence, "'we ought not to be hard on others. We ought to be thinking of our own sins.' But although Mrs. Maldon was perhaps the one person on earth whom he both respected and feared, Thomas Batchgrew listened to her injunction only with rough disdain. He was incapable of thinking of his own sins. While in health he was nearly as unaware of sin as an animal.' Nevertheless, he turned uneasily in the silence of the pale room, so full of the shy and prim refinement of Mrs. Maldon's individuality. He could talk morals to others in the grand manner, and with positive enjoyment, but to be sermonised himself secretly exasperated him, because it constrained him and made him self-conscious. Invariably, when thus attacked, he would execute a flank movement. He said bluntly, "'And I suppose you'll let him marry this Rachel girl if he's a mind to?' Slowly a deep flush covered Mrs. Maldon's face." "'What makes you say that?' she questioned, with rising agitation. "'I have but just seen them together.' Mrs. Maldon moved nervously in the bed. "'I should never forgive myself if I stood by and let Louis marry Rachel,' she said, and there was a sudden desperate urgency in her voice. "'Isn't she good enough for a nephew of yours?' "'She's good enough for any man,' said Mrs. Maldon quietly. "'Then it's him as isn't good enough, and yet if he's got such a good side to him as ye say,' Mr. Batchgrew snorted. "'He's not suited to her, not at all.' "'Now, Mrs.' said Mr. Batchgrew in triumph, "'at last we're getting down to your real opinion of young Forres. "'I feel I'm responsible for Rachel, and what ought I to do about it?' "'Do? What can a body do when a respectable young woman with red hair takes a fancy to a youth? "'Now, Elizabeth, that young woman'll marry Louis Forres, and you can take it from me.' "'But why do you say a thing like that? I only began to notice anything myself last night.' "'She's lost her head over him, that's all. I caught him just now, as thick as thieves in your parlour. "'But I'm by no means sure that he's smitten with her.' "'What does it matter whether he is or not? She's lost her head over him, and she'll have him. It doesn't want a telescope to see as far as that.' "'Well, then I shall speak to her. I shall speak to her to-morrow morning, after she's had a good night's rest, when I feel stronger.' "'Aye, you may. And what shalt say?' "'I shall warn her. I think I shall know how to do it,' said Mrs. Maldon, with a certain air of confidence and her trouble. "'I wouldn't run the risk of a tragedy for worlds.' "'It's no risk of a tragedy, as ye call it,' said Thomas Batchgrew, very pleased with his own situation in the argument. "'It's a certainty. She'll believe him afore she believes you, whatever ye say. You mark me. It's a certainty.' After elaborate preparations of his handkerchief, he blew his nose loudly, because blowing his nose loudly affected him in an agreeable manner. A few minutes later he left, saying the car would be waiting for him at the back of the town hall, and Mrs. Maldon lay alone until Mrs. Tams came in with a tray. "'And I hope that's enough company for one day,' said Mrs. Tams. "'Now sup it up, do.'" End of chapter 6